From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigiter.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? This week, it is the Sports Digital Groundsman Conversations. Um, I'm joined by the captain, Giles Morgan, which is always a delight. How are you, Giles? Roger, I'm great. And it's it's interesting, you know, I drive a, a Massey Ferguson um, tractor um, as, a, <laughs> as, as a groundsman, and it's very reliable, never breaks down. The third groundsman doesn't drive a tractor he drives a rather fancy car and I'm, I'm told he's broken down and can't join us which just goes to show being a flash git doesn't always work well well of course you're buying the line that he has broken down what what has happened is he's been driven off the road in one of those james bond type car chases around uh... the hills of tuscany he's 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 down a ravine just now. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll have to we'll Never have to ask we'll have to Oh, it's extraordinary. I don't know. I, I, I do wonder what he's up to most of the time, but anyway. it is bizarre. It is Here bizarre. We are. But anyway, listen, uh, tell me what is before we bring on this amazing guest we've got, which is a real highlight for both of us. But what has caught your interest a little bit in this week of sport? Well, it's going to doubtlessly come up in the conversation um, with our guest is we have in the UK uh, a major new golf tournament. Um, coming up, Live uh, Golf. It's the the new Saudi-backed event. It's the big event in town that is supposed to be the big disruption. Um, that's coming up actually today, really, when the when the when the, the show um, drops. I, a lot of the world will be watching to see what happens there. So that's a, a big story. The biggest story of me was on on Sunday with Rafa Nadal, of course, winning fourteenth um, French no, Open. Just amazing. Title. Just amazing. I, I, I spoke to um, a friend of mine, this sounds like a name drop, but it's not, but it, one of the commentators uh, on Eurosport who was calling the game was Tim Henman, former British number one. And I asked him about what he, what he felt about Nadal. He said, he and I mean, he's friends with all of these guys and Roger Federer is very much a very good friend of Tim. He said what Nadal has done, particularly with the injuries he sustained, the fact he's going age 36 with a pretty much a bust foot, and that he's still winning puts him in the at winning the very well. top of the, the t- top well. of the pantheon and doing it with so much three, grace. Three three zero, my god, that's a final three three zero. Unbelievable. And and the grand slam is on, Giles. The grand slam is on. 
It is on. I'd hope he'll make Wimbledon. I just, for me, and this is, I think, for all our listeners who I think are probably, hopefully, just fans of sport when all it all comes down to it, that's all it is, is if you've lived in some eras uh, and you're lucky enough, so if you like cricket and you've lived in the Shane Warne era, you know, obviously he's been taken from us, but you are aware that that was a great privilege as a fan of cricket. And I think to have lived, obviously, in the tennis time with the, the, the three greats of Djokovic, Federer and Nadal, Roger Federer looks to me like that's pretty much it. I can't see him coming back. Djokovic, harder to like, certainly easy yeah. to admire, but harder to like. I've suddenly got Nadal right at the top of my, I am so privileged to have watched him play, particularly in this twilight time where to win as he did in Australia and then again in, in on his home court, what is effectively his home court. Of course. To me, it was probably the biggest sporting story of the year. And then my final one, because I do like to bang on, is that my uh, my country of Wales um, had the kind of impossible task of, of facing Ukraine, as Scotland did a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And... Uh, that they've got through to their first World Cup in you, you 64 did years. You, you did the job. You did the job. And um, I know it's a, a tough a tough call. You know, the eyes of the world, of course, want Ukraine. But big shout out to, to Gareth Bale and to a Ukrainian head yes. um, for, getting, uh, for getting the Welsh to Qatar. I don't know how many Welsh fans know what they're in for when they get to Qatar. There's not many uh, pubs like there are in Cardiff or Swansea, but... Um, it will be. It's a. It's a great. It's a great moment for for, for Welsh sport. Well, and, and I, th- I think it is good. You know, uh, I think I said this before. You know, this is sport we're talking about. This is a sports podcast. It's not about um, politically doing what is the right thing or makes gives people the support that they need to politically. Um, Wales got through. Uh, I'm pleased for that. Even though the XG for those uh, data geeks like me. It was significantly in Ukraine's favour in that game. Um, they didn't score. Uh, they didn't live up to the XG, so uh, too bad. And it's good to see a British team in the week of the the Jubilee uh, get to get to the World Cup, which I'm delighted about. But before we ask you to introduce the guest, uh, Giles, I want to come back to Roland Garros. But uh, there was this inter- interesting incident uh, where. Um, somebody I admire a lot, um, Moresmo, um, great player herself, if I'm not mistaken, also a coach of her own Andy Murray at some point. I may be wrong on that, but I think I am. Um, she, she's now the, um, the director of the tournament uh, in charge of scheduling and, and everything like that. What, what, what's called at Wimbledon, the referee, the overall referee. So she, um, in my opinion, said something that was very truthful, but that didn't go down well, which happens quite a lot. And these days she said that um, the scheduling of the games uh, was very much dominated in the evening by men's games because the women's game wasn't attractive enough. Um, Now she's a woman herself, obviously, and a professional player of a certain level. And I believe she was telling the truth, um, but it opened up a can of worms around you know, this need to level up, uh, equal opportunity, um, which I don't think is correct. I'd be really interested in your view. You're more of a tennis person than me, Giles. Well, I and I noticed that you've been active on Twitter, uh, quite a lot of uh, toing and froing um, with, with various folk. And it's, it's a difficult one for, for me to, to answer, only because... 
It depends on what era you're talking about. We've come out of the men's era in tennis, clearly 18 years of extraordinary dominance by three players, plus a couple of others in Andy Murray, but really three players. But I grew up in the 80s where there was great dominance of of female tennis players. And I think my first love, I'm, I think I'm recorded, I think I'm allowed to say it, was, was Steffi Graf. She doesn't know that um, she was my first love, but she she was. And there were a great number of players around her during the 80s and 90s, which made the game incredibly attractive. So I think that, I know that you've been strong saying that tennis may find itself being very challenged. And I do accept that, you know, paddle is on massive growth in in, in many countries around the world and is a much easier game uh, to play. And therefore, participation numbers are going high. Tennis's biggest problem is it's a difficult game to play well. It's a very ubiquitous sport. You see tennis courts everywhere. But to be any good at tennis requires quite a lot of hand-eye coordination and, and skill. The women's game has not been particularly... It's had some great players. I mean, you only have to say the Williams sisters. But it mm-hmm. hasn't necessarily marketed itself so well. It hasn't been as um, followed as it was say, 25, 30 years ago. So therefore, it looks like it is less attractive. I don't buy that. I do believe that the game, the sort of gladiatorial nature of tennis, it's the ultimate expression. The the, the richest um, female athletes in the world are tennis players. And I do believe that with the right kind of marketing and the right kind of thought that needs to go into the game to make it, uh, to, to bring those athletes to the fore, can bring women's tennis back to where it is. Because I do accept that at the moment that I don't... And again, this <laughs> this could be the Netflix thing. I don't know who they are, therefore I don't know the personalities, therefore mm. I don't know enough of the substance around them in a way that we do about the men's game. So my feeling is, and maybe I don't think you're going to disagree with this, I don't think tennis per se is particularly screwed as a sport. I think it's the scoring system in tennis, I think the gladiatorial nature of it, and I think that the way tennis is played, the athleticism and the endurance of the athletes, male and female, is absolutely spot on. I just think now, and this is where you have to think about things, whether you're introducing, like IPL do, kind of... Uh, whiz bangs, fireworks. I don't quite mean it in such an obtuse way. I think a really good study of how to make this game more attractive to the viewer, and I mean the TV viewer, the media viewer, is something that needs to be looked at because otherwise, without that and the stories behind the athletes, it is in danger with the men's game losing, as it will in the next three or four years, the greatest three that have ever played. If the sport is... Um, has, sleepwalks any further, it might find itself it's it's missed its it's missed its opportunity. <laughs> That's possibly where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. I think the point I was trying to make um, was the idea that, and this is, you know, you keep coming back to this word continually, bundling. Um, the Roman Garrow writes as an asset bundle men and women together, as does Wimbledon. Um, and I believe, like all bundles, that they are fundamentally flawed as a modern media product uh, where technology allows you to go exactly to where you want. Um, I think most of the people that have bought the rights for Roland Garros, I'm speaking mainly about broadcasters, um, I've done their spreadsheets and seen that most of the value is in the men's game. Um, 
So I struggle very much when people say we should be levelling up. Um, I don't think it's sport's role to level up one version of the sport by gender compared to another. That doesn't mean to say I think one's better than the other. I think they should be marketed separately. They should have a risk-reward profile marketed uh, and put together separately. And the idea that you should put on women's games that are de facto less interesting than men's games just because it's even and it's levelling up, not only do I think that is unfair, I think that's actually quite silly when sport has got a hard enough task for second tier rights. And I tend to think Roland Garros is pretty much second tier rights um, to, 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 sh- to not show your best foot forward, which is the men's game. But this is a problem that many sports have. We've seen in golf, we see it in tennis, we see it with a great number is the governance of sport, the historical governance of sport is if you were inventing them all now you wouldn't start where we are today look at the problem that Wimbledon have faced um with the whole Ukraine situation they've been mm-hmm. they were damned if they did they were damned if they didn't Probably. you've got you've got the grand slam the four grand slams working together as a block but also they compete against each other you've got ATP you've got ITF you've got the WTA you've got all of these moving parts And whilst they should all be there, you would think, to protect the parts of the game that matter to them, they never work in unison. Never. Because they don't work in unison, it never looks uh, cohesive. And it's one of the reasons why I think golf, well, I think golf could nearly be there because I think Jay Monaghan and what he's done trying to pull people in from the tours and working with the the other majors has been significantly better than, than yesteryear. But it's still, there's a long way to go because you look at what's going on with live golf and stuff. There's still threats out there. But if sports can't work together as one and understand that the greatest enemy is not from within, but from without, which is people's attention, then yeah. you've got a real problem. And, and I think we're seeing that in, in tennis right now. I think that's right a great now. summary. I think it's a great summary. Competing rights holders trying to maintain their own status and all they're doing is really diluting the product, I feel. And, um, you know, ma- many of us have, have got a bit of experience to see this. Um, and, and that takes me into a little bit um, asking you to introduce somebody with a great deal of experience. Who's coming on the show today, Giles? Well, I know we're both thrilled that our guest this week is, um, he'd probably hate me to say he's a grandee of the sport. He's so well-dressed. He's a... He's a walking, he's a walking fashion model of a of a of a gentleman. But Andrew Croker's been in the industry for 40 plus years. Um, he's worked with rights holders, media owners, agencies, and of course brands, as you'd expect. He himself has worked for, I think he started off with Labrooks, uh, cheerleader, Sportal, Sport 5. He was head of sport at BSB, which is I think Roger where you uh, got to know yep. him. And I think and I think he started IMG's football division. So if that wasn't enough, it's a long list, but he's been going for a long, long time. In 2007, he uh, co-founded the digital sports rights agency Perform Group, which now people will know as DAZN, and and also um, Play Sport Group. Um, So he's done a lot. 
He's still doing a lot. I mean, he cycles all the time. He also plays a lot of golf. He's as fit as a butcher's job, but he's also chairman of Oakwell Sports Advisory as well as a number of other firms. The guy never stops. So I think we're going to get an hour with him, but I think it, we'd probably want three or four and we may need to get him back in future shows. Yeah, I think but so. Need, what yeah. a joy to have uh, Andrew Croker, commonly known as Croaks, join us on Are You Not Entertained? Andrew Croker, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? You're a virgin on this show. We've never had you. It's been four years. We've not managed to get you on. What changed your mind? You never asked me before. <laughs> Good to see you, Andrew. Lovely to see you again. <laughs> now, I saw, I'm obviously, I've, seen, I've, I've been trying to catch up desperately, but there's an awful lot of guests to catch up with. But uh, And you've raised the bar and you've got some amazing people on. And, um, I, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, obviously, having known both of you for an inordinately long time. Well, it's, it's we, we felt, Andrew, we couldn't ask you on until we had won the award. We'll, we're going to be very <laughs> honest here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like uh, it's now the, the top of the tree. And it is great to see you. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a great walk down memory lane and a look into the future over the horizon. Yeah, but I want to kick things off. Andrew, I know, Croaks, that you've been uh, hosting the defeated, uh, I imagine it's the Kiwi cricket team, I can't imagine which other Kiwis it would be, at your your local golf club down there in Surrey. Um, How was your golf? How was their golf? Who was successful on the golf course? And did you rub it in that maybe that they could have won that, uh, that test match and didn't? Um, it was a joint effort with me and the boys from Pitch, because I know you all know Ollie Slipper and uh, John Owen and those guys, and they work very closely with New Zealand cricket. So we, um, and I, so I'll just drop this one on the floor, but I, I, I'm old mates with Ryan Fox, who's been doing very well on the European tour recently, and he's a, he's a fantastic bloke, um, you know, son of the legendary Grant Fox. And uh, I've been playing golf with Ryan on and off for a few years, and I, and I, and he, if you, I don't know if you saw him on Instagram, but he was in the Nets last week, he'd been clearly back. I think at school he opened the batting with uh, Tim Southie. So he's, he's a, he was, in his day, a proper cricketer. But he's certainly a proper golfer. And um, I said to him, if, you know, if the boys want to come down, uh, we'd be happy to host them. And obviously, because we <laughs> polished them off without any trouble at all a day early, um, they, uh, they said, uh, can we come down today? So we had a few of them down today. I played with Gary Stead, who was the manager. He was a really nice bloke. And we had... Uh, I had uh, Carl Jameson, who made me at six foot eight, made me look ridiculously short and also ridiculously short off the tee. And um, Neil Wagner and Devin Conway and some other guys. And it was a huge amount of fun. And we all played okay. And we, we were. We were all set for a Sounds big lunch. perfect. I'm really, really sorry. What's well, something very, very important to do. So, um, and, Are they uh, still... But they, they were lovely guys. And, and what was interesting, we were talking about the game over the weekend and they said it was just such a privilege to be back playing in front of you know proper crowds and the atmosphere was sensational it was played in an amazingly good spirit and i think it'll be what do i know about cricket nothing but uh, i think it's you know it's a three test series i'm, I'm not counting the chickens I'll tell you, I, I, I am a cricket fan and I was at Lord's on, Sas- oh, on Saturday, which was um, a privilege. <laughs> I, I keep coming back to this. We all talk about, and I know we'll get into this, about sports evolving and having to connect and change. I've enjoyed the 100, I've enjoyed 2020 cricket, but bloody hell, I enjoyed watching a test match like that. And it is wonderful when old-fashioned sport can remind all of us, whether we're agitators, whether we're disruptors, whether we're just whatever it may be, that a test match still has a place in the cricket crown. I really do believe that. Well, it's interesting because they obviously, 
obviously, I, I couldn't resist mentioning Lords, um, particularly because there was a sort of deja vu all over again moment with Ben Stokes coming off his bat and all the rest of it. And they and they said, well, yes, but it was one of those things. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't somebody made a terrible mistake, or unless you want to say the umpires did, but it wasn't a terrible mistake. It was great. They then went on to become world test champions, and uh, these things go around and they come around. And uh, but certainly, test match cricket, you know, how often? I mean, I, I well, obviously, Joe Root would have been loved by every fan there because I think he got there with five balls to spare for a, a, a rain uh, check, didn't he? So they were all, there was a double whammy for all the England fans on, on, on Sunday. But, you know, five day tests don't happen very often, but I agree with you, test cricket. Um, is uh, is still fantastic. Well, and we see that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this as well, And with golf being the other sport where you are seeing them, is that we've got this week, actually on the day that, that this show will go out, we've got the Live Golf coming up with mm. uh, what is being called Saudi Golf, and, and the, the golf media, certainly in the UK, are doing their their very best to slam it before it started, and there's uh, the overtures of Saudi money, and, and I think a lot of... Um, naivety being spoken about where the money comes from because a lot of sports are funded by all sorts of uh, uh, different means. But I'm interested, you are a golf man and it's something that you play and you've been involved in the sports industry for 40 years. We have a disruptor coming into to golf and the PGA Tour is very mighty, very big. You've got the DP World Tour, which is powerful too and very established. Where do you see this one heading out? You've been around for a while. I mean, you, and you were around when Packer was around. Is this a, is this a threat or is this just an irritant? Um, yes, if you if you look at historically where the great disruptors have been, cricket is probably the best example because of World Series and and you might say IPL as well. And I'm slightly surprised that w- with the golf that they didn't uh, pursue a slightly more IPL method of of operating within the structure of the sport and. Uh, and uh, I would love somebody to show me the piece of paper that says when the Saudis embarked on this, the one page that says this is our objective. I mean, is our objective to become embraced by the world golfing community? Is it to make Saudi Arabia a great destination for sport? Is it to demonstrate that we are collaborative, enlightened, and all those things you want to say? Because if you that's what you were trying to achieve, why would you hire, you know, Greg Norman for whom? Um, I, I hesitate to say, but I'm reading this. You know, Wayne Gray, he said, Greg is only about Greg. He's been trying to take down the PGA Tour for 30 years and went on to say, you know, end up with GFY sharp. You can look up what GFY means in your own time. Uh, I mean, I sort of, I, I, I'm just mystified by it. And also, this is a tap they've turned on. And what happens if they turn the tap off? Um, but, but again, but it is... Um, as in tennis, these are these are allegedly free agents, though they are tied to the tour, and particularly the Americans are tied through their pension system, um, which I think is is financially a challenge. So, you know, do you say it's wrong that a Kevin Nahr, who's probably not going to win a major now and gets the chance to you know make an amount of money that is life changing for him, his children, and his grandchildren, you know? He is bloody slow, though. With Cro- that, but I, I just Crokes, think he's bloody, nice. he's bloody snow, Kevin. Get him off the tour. I mean, get him get off. Him they off. must be delighted. <laughs> Charles, you know, you, know, you know Asian golf particularly. You know, they're, they're saying that Appy Barnrat will be the highest earning golfer in the world this year because he's got an Asian tour card and therefore he can play in every event. And you, you've been in the thick of it with, with Asian golf politics. And they, the Asian tour nearly merged with the, with the European tour, which many felt was a real missed opportunity. I mean, what, what, what do you, you think? I mean... 
Well, I do. What I think they missed a trick. I think what you said earlier is is bang on, which is golf missed a big trick around the Olympics, in my view. They could have gone mixed very early and changed the game up at a time when diversity was really, really gathering some steam. That didn't happen. They they wanted to keep the IOC happy. Um, if I'd been if I'd been live golf, I'd be saying, right, we're going to really rip this up. We're going to look at team golf. We're going to mix it up. Because, but to your point, what was the objective? If the objective is tourism, if the objective is um, to knock the PGA Tour out, which I doubt it was, I don't think that objective was ever clearly stated. And therefore, this just looks like a kind of um, warfare, which is a historic warfare, as you say. Norman has uh, has previous and has a, a probably has a long memory. And I, mean, I don't. We all, it's pretty well known, they, they tried to scupper the World Tour deal. And you know, there were extensive meetings between the PGA European Tour and and the Saudis about a, a collaborative arrangement. And with that sort of money and firepower to create the branding and the events and all the rest of it. I mean, the golf, the world golf narrative is very complicated. You know, there's world rankings, there's FedEx rankings, there's Ryder Cup points, there's the road to Mandalay, the road to Dubai. I mean, there's all these things going on. But generally, Golf fans get it, but I'm not sure they want to embrace change. And the idea that there's going to be 12 teams and 48 players and 54 holes and no cuts and shotgun starts and all the rest of it, I'm just – people are very resistant to change. It's not like bringing in tie breaks in tennis or or changing the back class or in football. Andrew, you know, um, I'm listening listening to this and and, and you two are the experts on this, but – me being the kind of like petty and, and and silly guy on this podcast, you talk about branding and everything like that there. Um, do you know, I saw today that, uh, you know, the artist that is going to be in their after party after the end of the event is Jessie J. Let me, let me read out uh, the, the two first lines of her most famous song. It seems that everybody has got a price. I wonder how they sleep at night. This is the artist <laughs> they choose to do. I mean, yeah. like, it's a little bit like the Super League. I mean, with all their money and all their... Th- I mean, Jesus, go to the experts, the ones I've got a little bit of nows about this kind of stuff, yeah. no? Should have had ABBA and done money, 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 and, you know, with the holograms. <laughs> done it properly, yeah. <laughs> oh, this, this is even worse, this one. I mean, like, how I, do I, you I, sleep I, at I, night? I, yeah, but, the, you know, listen, I mean... Giles, you might be right. In five years' time, we are, might look back and say, actually, that was a brilliant blessing in disguise. You know, it, it stirred people up and the rest of it. But it is, um, I mean, you know, I, I know it's going to be, I say covered, it's going to be on YouTube, and, you know, which is interesting. I mean, if you look back at the, you remember when the European Super League was mooted and, and people said, you know, I heard people said broadcast and saying we've got to be talking to these guys. And you go, no, it's not. It's kryptonite. You can't go anywhere near it. Just leave it be and see what happens because it ain't going to work anyway. So you don't want to have your name be seen to be endorsing it, all the rest of it. So I think a lot of people are going to be arms like, but you know, but I, I'm uh, intrigued by the YouTube I, I thing. I think I, I think for a lot of the golf audience, YouTube is a type of uh, container for ointment they put on their backsides. But we'll see. Um, <laughs> now, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post, a big profile on Greg Norman, and you know, um, a really long form piece, really interesting, and and you know, I, I learned something from it. Liv is actually Roman numerals um, for fifty four, 
Um, and I didn't know that. And I just wonder out of curiosity whether that's because if majors had been over 54 holes, Greg Norman would have a significantly bigger hole than he has today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you, you mean, Phil, they would have got him after 36 rather than 54 and waiting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I should definitely use that. Yeah, who knows? Well, I mean, it, it was a very good article. He didn't come out of it well at all. Um, but, you know, the thing that strikes me about all of this, and I think it would be rather superficial for people to say, oh, this is just like the Super League. There's a difference. You know, um, the PGA and, and I think the, the tennis boys, girls as well, they're really players' unions where you're with your colleagues, whereas football is not like that. There's clubs in between and you're really an employee of a club, so slightly different. And, and you know, Eddie Pepperell, our friend, you know, put an opinion piece out saying a little bit along the lines of, you know, it's never great when you're all in the boat together and then somebody decides to do a solo album because that's a little bit like what this is sounding like, you know? And, and you know, I, I, whilst I'm a big fan of the, the idea of, you know, the mega clubs in the Super League, everybody knows that. Um, in golf, I, I don't like leaving your mates from a union point of view when you were all in it together the day before. I think that's slightly different. Well, yes, but, you know, it's like when people talk about, you know, the amounts of money that footballers earn and you say, yes, but actually they're 25 years old and they're one tackle away from never playing again. And it's the same with, you know, I mean, Nadal's a bad example, but, you know, he is, you know, maybe that's the last time we'll ever see him play a competitive game of tennis. And it's the same with golfers. You know, you get the, I, I'm not allowed to say the word shank, but, but you know, you get the shanks or you get the twitches. You can't say that either. But, you know, you, you are, or, uh, you know, Dustin Johnson's just got a bad back or whatever. You know, there are people in the twilight, you know, people disappear very quickly. You know, David Duval, mm -hmm. there are golfers who are, are there and then the next minute they're not. And somebody comes along and writes you a check. I mean, it's, I can understand the uh, the temptation. And Andrew, it, Andrew, I'm, I'm, uh, you're right here. Uh, uh, just listening to you, um, and I do know you a long time and I know your history, Um I think you would have been a, a great guy at the FA, just like your old man. I think sport just now, um, and, and there'll be some people here that might find this painful, so I'll say it. I think sport is missing a little bit of leadership these days. You know, in our generation, I know Giles is slightly younger, but let's just say we're all the same age. Um, you had Ted Croker, you had Annie Walker, you had Jim Farry. You had um, Gerard Eigner. You know, you had big beasts who made themselves known. And, 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 you know, if you just think about football in the last couple of weeks, we'd had, you know, to come back to your, your dad, we've had uh, crossbars broken at Man City. Uh, for the, uh, we've had St Etienne fans uh, storming their players, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why aren't you where you should be, Andrew? leading something really important in sport? Uh, well, it's very kind of you to say so. Well, I, I, I had a serious run at it, and there was a, a very amusing article. In, I say amusing, it made me laugh. Anyway, the Daily Mail last year when David Richards was commenting about the fact that um, Richard Scudamore and I went for the job to be CEO of the Premier League. I think it's, it, it was reported in that article correctly that I got down to the last two. And, um, and David Richards, bless him, who was... As many of you know, was was chairman of the Premier League, 
was quoted the Daily Mail article as saying, it came down to Richard Scudamore and Chris Croker, and uh, we couldn't separate them. So we sent them to uh, Oxford University for psychometric evaluation. And Richard came out clearly on top. So I read this. And funnily enough, I was on the train with David Davis going from uh, Marylebone to Wembley for a game. And he said, have you seen the, day, the mail on Sunday? I said, no, but he showed it to me. So I sent a message to, to Scud saying, um, I don't remember that, do you? He says, no, didn't happen. And, and, it's, and it simply didn't happen. But in fact, I think that uh, Richard was absolutely the right choice. Uh, he's far more thick-skinned than me. And I also have a very uh, relatively short attention span. I've never done anything in my life that lasted longer than four years, apart from my marriage. And I um, I think, uh, yes, I would love to have been involved. I think that one of the problems is with these roles is it's very seductive, um, as evidenced by a lot of the people who've pursued it, who I, many of whom I don't think should have been in the first place at all. I, I do question that the way now that we... Um, select and recruit chairman and chief executives of our sports governing bodies. I think there a lot of them are invisible. And I think that, you know, I, I know you were having the debate with Barney the other day about um, the regulator. And I think there will be less of a call for a regulator in football if we were seen to have better governance and more high profile. Amen, amen, and, amen, and stronger amen. Individuals. And I, I would say over the last three to three years, particularly when we have faced many issues, including the Super League, including obviously COVID, including what is going on now with you know, pitch invasions and the rest of it. But people are invisible. I, I, I just don't understand it. And there's a lack of succession planning. I remember many years ago with the FA, there was a great guy called Glenn Curtin. And I think it was the same with Jonathan Hill. That if you worked internally at the FA and you were looking to go for the top job, the best chance you had of getting it was to leave and then and then apply when you had yeah, left. Yeah, it's often the case. Unlike, say... You know, Adam Silver, who was what at the NBA for 13 to 15, 13 years, whatever it was. And then um, and he, and then he came in as the successor because he'd been there and that was that that was the plan. But, you know, we in organizations don't seem to go that way. We seem to think there's going to be some magic bullet. And you're going to find somebody who understands it. And skills are not translatable. It's a very highly skilled thing. And I think it's a highly skilled. And I mean, I look particularly at the FA where I say that. You know, when my, my father was running it, and you'll remember it, you know, and we had the... I do. Your lot pulling down the pitches and you tried to stop us, Mr. Croker, and all this stuff. I remember my father going out on that famous day at Wembley when the nips chaos and actually standing there and talking to the Scottish fans who were actually enormously entertaining and very unthreatening. And it was actually, actually quite fun. But um, I think the... He had a very good relationship with particularly Bert, uh, Bert Millichip as chairman, but others like Andrew Stephen. And then, then that sort of all just got very confused yeah. over the next few years over who was who was actually running the organization and and at the same time you had this i'm afraid a chaotic relationship very often with the ministers for sport um who particularly had to generalize but i would say generally the labor ministers for sport were much more in tune with sport than the, the tory ones i remember there was my mate john griffith's dad was was Minister for Sport, he refused to speak to my father because he said, I only speak to chairman. And I just, and just thought, well, my God, very much then, are you? I mean, it was absolutely bizarre. And I think that, you know, we went through that phase when we had one or two chairmen uh, who thought that they were basically minister for football and that the, the chief executive of the FA was a, a civil servant. And it was just, 
it just sort of it all just seemed very odd to and me. And this could come back. This kind of thing can come back. Yeah. But Andrew, listen, whilst we're on football, and then we'll leave it. Uh, but you know, football. That's when you and I met for the second time. The first time was when. Uh, I wrote to you at BSB and you were very yeah. kindly giving me a stats job in Italian football. Um, and I'm internally grateful for you for that. Um, but the second time I met you uh, was when I'd just been appointed the CEO of the SPL. And you guys at IMG, you were the head of football at IMG, had been helping the breakaway uh, group of Scottish chairmen uh, set up their new league and principally negotiate their new TV deal. Now, I came in there and I, I very clearly got an idea that, let's be honest, you guys had got them out a hole when they had overplayed their hand first time around. Do you want to talk a little bit about the madness of trying to herd uh, football chairmen that think that their rights are a little bit more valuable than they actually are? Yeah, it's quite funny because we were, um, my partner in crime um, at IMG, Jonathan Hill, who you, you, you know well. Jonathan, yeah. Yeah. Um, ironically, of course, is now at the, uh, the Football Association of Ireland. And if you were going to talk about governance, anyone who... I'm sure you've read Champagne Football, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> which, is, which is an amazing read. And sort of, if you want to sum up how, how crazy it can become with uh, John Delaney. Um, so it was, it was very entertaining at that time, which, because I didn't know the Scottish chairman the way I knew the English chairman, um, obviously. But um, they were a very, very interesting bunch of, uh, of characters. You, you herded them pretty well. Um, but it all came down to a fundamental truth that if there was competition for the rights, uh, it was a free market. And we had, you know, we had Sky and ITV in the frame and we were playing the game. They're absolutely convinced that we were sort of orchestrating it some way, but it wasn't true. We had genuine competition. And I remember, bless him, Stuart Milne, who was uh, chairman of Aberdeen, I recall. And I yeah. to, to stop me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, he was a he was a property developer and he had this fantastic spreadsheet, which was how to do property development. And he, he worked out the, the value of every single game. Uh, using the same template of a spreadsheet, the wallpaper the house with. And we kept saying, Stuart, it actually, Stuart, it doesn't make any difference. So if we've got two bidders, it's going to be one thing. If we've got one bidder, it's going to be something else. And we went on and in, enormously entertaining meetings with David Murray and, and all the others. But, um, but in the end, um, I think I think we got it. We? I mean, I, I don't have... No, you, you did a great job, but I, the, way, the way I remember it was that um, the I think it was Murray himself... Um, it, the, when it was coming to the sharp end with Sky, uh, they gave an ultimatum to Tony Ball and said, um, we will accept this and you've got till the end of the day to um, agree to it or it's all off. <laughs> and I may be wrong here, but I don't think so. Tony Ball just let that come and go, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, as you do. Yeah. And um, they came back to dear uh, Andrew Croker and said, Andrew, can you put it back together again, please? I think yeah. that's how it went, Andrew. Well, Trevor East was involved and uh, in all that. And we were, uh, I, listen, I, I have to go, well, I'm, I'm not sure if you haven't got the files, I'd have to go back and re remember it. But uh, it was um, it was extremely entertaining. I, I remember, you know, at the time, I remember, you know, Tony Ball had been at Champion TV when we were, so back they were the provider of sport to BSB, you know, and he was head of engineering, whatever it was. But I remember Tony once saying to me, he said, you know, with, even with the Premier League, he said, don't forget, there is a price at which we will walk away. And and I would, I think that is absolutely as true today as it was then, that I'm sure for all broadcasters, um, uh, whether it's a DAZN or whether it's an NBC or whether it's 
briar, whatever, there is a price at which you say it's actually just not worth having it. You know, you have you have to have a plan B, and uh, and and uh, you know, and the Premier League and the SPL went through a succession of phases in the UK where we were very fortunate to have multiple bidders, and the reason the rights get ramped up because there was always competition, and whether it was it was Sky, ITV. BBC, Satanta, Satanta. ITV, yeah. BT Sport, always. And then when it stalled, it was when the, 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 nobody new appeared. And whether football will be the driver going forward, particularly in the subscription market, I think the jury's out on that. Andrew, sorry. Andrew, you've been um, around the sports industry um, for quite a long time. And in fact, you don't look it. You're in rude good health. And I know you've had some health scares, but you cycle. You never look so good. Our listeners can't see how good you do look. But a genuine question here is that, you know, you grew up with sport through being seeing what your father did at the FA. And, and it's been in your blood all your life. And this podcast in particular talks a lot about the changes coming up in sport, the disruption, the need to change the model, the change of leadership, that there's new money coming into sport. There's change everywhere. But as someone who's been, you've seen it kind of in the the height of the blazer time, and now where maybe it's skinny jeans and young finance people coming in, do you get a sense that the new leadership understands its fan base and its consumer as well as they should? Or do you think that some of the old Blazerati back along, they may not have understood the finance, but they did have a better grasp of the the true grassroots of the sport? I guess the question is, reflectively, sport is in a massive change time and will continue to do so. How do you compare the eras from the bookends of your career? No, that's a a big subject, isn't it? But I certainly look now at a lot of the people who are leading and making decisions in acquisition of sport and think that a lot of it is very much based on data and uh, and information and projections and all the rest of it. Whereas in the old days, it was much more like a newspaper editor saying, what do you feel is right? Because it wasn't necessarily driven by ratings. And I suspect if we go back to the old days of, I mean, in the UK, for example, of uh, Jonathan Martin or John Bromley or whatever, making decisions, it was their gut feeling about what worked um but i think that has changed um i think i think that where i mean when barney was talking about sky and vic and Andy melvin all those guys he, he didn't mention trevor east and i think because vic was not for example he was not a road warrior he didn't go out and see vic at every event but you know you saw trevor at every event and it was about building relationships and i i think historically i've seen great point successively um, say the BBC you know, the BBC could throw in the towel a long long time ago and should have been much much more collaborative and say look we can't, we're not going to beat these guys, we're going to join them, we've got to work with other people and I think I would have seen a lot more of that but I think that we may go through that again where people are now consuming their sport in a way across multiple platforms, across multiple devices that the actual concept of new exclusivity is not going to be what it was just because of piracy and screens and data and gaming and all fantasy and all those other things and probably the golden age of exclusivity was at the time that they launched sky that you actually you had something exclusive you could promote it you could distribute it i i so i think i don't know that really that really answers the question but i think um you still i still think you have to have a real feel for the sport and the rest of it and have those deep relationships it's beyond it just being 
binary well, and be... Well, like, yeah, and, and, and you've kind of answered that in your own career in terms of you may have grown up in the old school, but the, the kind of stuff that you did with Perform that became Disown was very disruptive. That was very technological. At the time, it was the height of new technology and you were disrupting your own in- industry. So, and I, I felt on the show when we had Barney, I thought when he was talking about the cast list and with Ollie Slipper of that time in the sort of end of the 90s and, and 2000s is that sport went through its first modern revolution then, of which you were very much part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the challenge with zone will be it's, Obviously, it, it was the worst possible position for a sports broadcaster to be in a time of COVID when the whole thing is based on a platform which is based on live sport. It's not based on all the shoulder programming and documentaries and, you know, channel and archive and the rest of it. It's basically watch it now and not, you know, our build up and all the rest of it. So, therefore, and as you'll know now, you know, the, the zone is, is looking at you know, other direct to consumer propositions. So, because that is a logical way that you put, you know, to, to, to I hesitate to say monetize their, their their fan base or their consumers, but that's the way that the, the, the world is going. Andrew, I want to I want to take you back a little bit, uh, still with IMG, and uh, when I was doing the research for this, um, you and I know this to be true. Um, you were very much well. You felt that IMG changed at a certain point in time, and. <laughs> The episode I want to bring to your mind is when IMG bought a, a, a football agent business, a certain <laughs> Ber, Bernie Mandich. Bernie yeah. Mandich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. now um, th- this is one of the great stories. Uh, and I saw it from my side of the table, um, which was the, uh, the Celtic side. Bernie Mandich had one main client, it was Mark Viduka. Uh, who was today, I think you would call him somebody that was close to being bipolar as a player, uh, as a personality. Uh, Celtic had made a major uh, acquisition in bringing him to Celtic. um, And he went AWOL. He went AWOL. And whilst it was not your division of IMG, since you were dealing with the Scottish clubs, of which Celtic was one... Well... And no, it, it sort of was my division of IMG because because um, I had joined IMG, you know, at the invitation of Ian Todd, you know, basically said it's a nonsense. We're the biggest agency in the world. We're not really involved in the biggest sport in the world, which were, which was a nonsense. I mean, somebody famously at IMG had gone off, had been tasked with saying, we don't do anything in South America. Go off and do a feasibility study. So this this couple of people went off to South America. They came out and produced a 120-page report, which my mate, Paul Smith, who you guys will know, um, dug out of the archive and read it, and there were pages on polo and tennis and everything. And football didn't get mentioned. And then you know, he's the only sport in South America. And um, so it was a nonsense that we weren't involved in football, but McCormack, because, you know, I, I, you know so I, I, without any question, Mark McCormack invented athlete representation, just as I would say Horst Dassler and, uh, and ISL invented um, federation marketing. And it would always be, you know, we should get into representing footballers. But I always felt there was a massive, massive disconnect between the way IMG worked with tennis players and golfers, which is about to do the tax returns, book their flights and the rest of it, and deal with in, in the in the crazy Wild West of uh, football agencies and where it was, you know, the Wild West. And, but he was adamant that we should get into it, and I was charged with it. And we went off, and we we and we thought the simple way to do it was to get um, 
find agencies in and around the UK. So there was a guy called Roger Linster in Holland, who was a great bloke, a bloke called Norbert Flippen, who was known as Flippy in Germany. He was a football agent, and I believe that he became a football agent because he worked for the council in uh, Munich, and he was brilliant at getting them off speeding tickets. And he became <laughs> mates with all players because he'd get them off speeding tickets and parking tickets. And Norbert Flippen became a very successful agent. He was a great bloke, so we got... The, and then there was the infamous Bernie Mandich, who was Croatian but lived in Australia. And Mark Viduka uh, played for Australia, um, was, was, and his parents lived in Australia, and he was, there was this guy, Tudjman, who was a sort of despotic warlord in Croatia, persuaded his parents that he should come and play in Zagreb. And he went to Zagreb where he was abused. I mean, he would score a hat-trick and be spat at. He couldn't walk down the street without getting abused. And then was sold to Celtic. And he, so Arnold obviously was involved in that. And then he arrived, but as you remember, Roger, very well, he didn't arrive. He didn't turn up. Didn't. He went walkabout. And I don't think there's any question now with the, what we know is that he had PTSD. I mean, he clearly yeah, yeah. went into meltdown. Yeah. And um, the chairman of Celtic was, of course, Fergus McCann, who was, I think, was he living in America? I think he was, he was a Canadian Scot that went to Canada, made money yeah. in golf tourism, yeah. and was a notoriously difficult man himself. Today, he would be called probably on the spectrum in some way or another. And... Um, Fergus was not a guy um, to smoothly understand the swings and roundabouts of life. He went for every little crack until it was filled or there was resolution. And poor Andrew had yeah, to so, deal with so, is, so then, but then the, the crazy bit was that Mark comes to England, he then goes walkabout in our house in Putney, and I've got him, and it was Jim White, wasn't it, this guy? He was reading me every 10 minutes. Where's, where's Mark? Where's Mark? Anyway, so then... So he's in my spare bedroom in Putney, and the phone's going all night. And it's like four o'clock in the morning. It's Fergus ringing from, from Miami. And I remember over breakfast, Joanna, uh, Joanna said to me, she said, right, this is how it's going to be. One of us is going. It's either me or Mark. So I said, <laughs> I went to see Mark over breakfast. I said, Mark, I've got bad news, mate. It's you. And, um, and so you are the weakest link. So Mark had to go. But then... The famous thing was that we ended up, Jonathan Hill and I, and Fergus. I, can you remember who it was who was running Celtic then on date? It was the, the guy who was... Uh, that would be... Um, that would be... Um, uh, after, um, no, it, would, it was Fergus. Fergus was in charge. That yeah, was Fergus. Another guy came with us. Anyway, so we flew to Zagreb. Jim Horn. Who? Jim Horn. No, it wasn't him. Uh, oh, maybe the lawyer then. Well, maybe it would have been the lawyer. Kevin Sweeney. Anyway... So we flew to Zagreb, landed in a snowstorm, got picked up by car. We drive, you know, it's like a Woody Allen movie. The winds come out, it's going like, it's snowing, it's a blizzard. And we've been chased by two cars, who I assume are, are press. And I've told this story before, but, you know, he said, I said, folks, I, I really didn't think this is how I was going to die. And we got to this <laughs> hotel. There were only two hotels, so they knew where we were going. And we'd had this shuttle diplomacy over three floors for the night of us trying to broker a deal. And, of course, he ended up going back. He became a huge success. As somebody famously said, the best, the best number sixty-six in Scotland, wasn't he? Roger <laughs> played number sixty-six, and then I think he went to Middlesbrough and scored four goals against Liverpool and all the rest of it. So no, I, don't I, think, I think he went to Leeds. He, 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 did, he did do well, no. But the fact is that he was a I think the size of a house, he was a monster to play. Yeah, very gentle. But the, the fact is, you had to chase him down in the middle yeah. of the wild west, Eastern Europe. 
uh, around the time of the, you know, the poster wall coming down with Fergus McCann, yep. and you're being chased by people you don't know who they are. All I mean, like uh, they're all in, so they're all straight out of Len Dayton, you know, in, in leather leather yeah. jackets, leather coats down to the ground. Yeah. it was, you know, but that's that's why I didn't want to be a football agent. I remember going to when we were in this space. I was down at I was at Charlton Athletic. I was at Valley. I was in the boardroom. And so boardroom was I was quite relaxed, but that was my sort of space with you know people in suits and all the rest of it. And then Barry Neville, who we were also involved, said, "Come in the players' bar." And I went in the players' bar with all the agents, and it was like the bar in Star Wars for me. I'm just going. <laughs> just, I don't, you know, I don't, this isn't my world. I don't know what's going on here. It's very yeah. strange. So, and it, it was just, but I know there are people, and I've got friends who are football agents, some of my best friends are football agents, and I know that they love it and they're really good at it and all the rest of it, but it, it just wasn't for me. Crooks, again, go, going back on your, on this extraordinary career you've had, one of the things that I, uh, I've, well, I've, I've enjoyed your parties, your former parties at Wimbledon. You are a great storyteller. You're also a published author. You, you have a great number of stories. Do you think, and I think of this in my old world of rugby, actually, where, you know, back in the day, the rugby players had great stories when they went on tours and they got up to all sorts of mischief. Do you think the, um, the stories in the sports world compare to 20, 30, 40 years ago? Do you think that same sense of spirit, adventure, humour, on the field or off the field, still exists? Um, well, I... It's a great question. That is yeah. a great question. I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, if you were going to write anecdotes about rugby tours and cricket tours and all the rest of it, you would go back in the archive because you wouldn't get the, the same ones now. I'm just going to grab something because I printed that earlier for me. So I think the stories now, obviously, they're different. I mean, people, I mean, and obviously, a huge amount of it is driven by social media, which means you can't do all, and all the things that we wanted to do in the past. So clearly, it is different. Um, and I just think, you know, that the characters are different. You know, it, of course it, it won't be the same, but there, there's still stories out there and there's still things to be told. I mean, funny, um, you mentioned very kindly that I wrote a book, which is, which is entirely work of fiction. And I, I just, I just pulled off because I, I, I still in the back of my mind had the idea that I want to write a, a book, um, which would be, um, if I was going to write a book about the sports industry, uh, this is almost, this is also a pub game which would be uh, 10 deals that change the world. And I think that because nobody wants to read a whole book about me or the whole book about, you know, the FA and everything, but I think there is a, a story to be written about the deals that actually change sport. And, but the rules oh. are you can only pick one deal in each sport and it's got to be something so that So not actually... to lead the witness, but clearly the handshake with McCormack um, yes. would be there, has to be. Yes. Number well, you're not on video if you're listening. But number one is is um, you know he his handshake with Arnold Palmer, which was yeah. never uh, put put in writing. But I, I think that was been, you know in terms of athlete reputation, I, I would say yes. And then that, you well, go on. if I get one shot, but Andrew. Stories, yes, I think there are some great stories to be told about the business side, as, as much as there are about stories of you know the Lions on tour in, in New Zealand and you know asking. When they said the police are coming, they said, how many of them will there be? You know, I mean, there's a, there's a million of those, aren't there? I mean, I have, what I have discovered in my, my brief excursions on a bicycle with Lawrence Delario and playing a lot of golf with ex-footballers is, I mean, they may retire sportsmen, but, God, they still love being on tour for any reason at all. Absolutely. I think they Absolutely. All, 
miss that as much as anything else, don't they? I'm sure you guys have experienced that as well. One of those great stories, again, coming back to our old friend, John T. I don't think you were there this night in Glasgow, Andrew. Um, you, you you tended to get out of dodge pretty, pretty as soon as you could, but Jonty stayed for one night. It was a it was a sponsor launch that we had, and uh, you know I was doing my working the room, the sponsors meeting and greeting interviews. So I was kind of like I'd lo- I'd left the back room for a while, and I didn't know what was going on. And then at a certain point, there's this massive kerfuffle. And for some reason, John T and the leading sports writer in Scotland at the time, Jerry McNee, were going at it. They were absolutely going at it. And, and, and like, I, I, I think it was about something absolutely banal about, you know, Celtic versus Leeds in 1970 or something oh, no, like that. That's not banal. That's, that's important. That's life-changing. Yeah, but I mean, like, to be, to be like, being physically separated, and and you know that 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 is sport. Giles is right. You know, like if you if you peel away the onion, there is just some world class craziness in this well, industry. I remember, I, I remember we were trying. To, Jonathan and I were doing much the same thing in in Holland when the um, Sport Seven thing uh, collapsed with the Endemol people and all the rest of it, and they had to restructure the whole thing. We got brought in, and we went to this famous meeting, and there must have been three representatives per club in this meeting room. They were all smoking cigars of different sizes. You couldn't virtually see one end of the meeting table to the other. And we were there as advisors, but with, with the full translation, the whole thing was in Dutch. And it started about three in the afternoon. And at 11 o'clock, it was still going in the evening. And they're all drinking beer. And they're all smoking cigars. And then I turned to Jonathan and I went, I can't hear anything. And, and, and they suddenly said, no, the, the translators, they have to go home. And we had to sit there. It went on till four in the morning. So Jonathan and I sat at four in the morning with this in this fog of cigar smoke and lager, and and it all got done, and we and we got paid, and that was the end of it. But it was. It was I had it was, I, I had a similar situation. I had a similar situation in China in about 1995, where a client, a whiskey brand, was um, doing a deal with the Chinese Rugby Association. Uh, which was basically the Chinese army that wanted to play rugby, and the translators knocked off at 10 o'clock. And I am, I kid you not, me and a, a former Scotland player and a a, um, a guest on the show, Gavin Hastings, sat somewhere in Guangzhou eating snake, drinking oh, local yeah. local spirits without translators with four five-star generals. And mm. we just knew if anything went wrong, that we might yeah. not be making it out. Yeah. And if you finish the snake and force it down, they bring out another one. So it, yeah, you can't you win. I mean, go it's, slow, go it's slow. Horrible. It's horrible, yeah. <laughs> Tell me, you've seen so much in the industry and we've talked about the great characters and you've you've been one of them but you've also worked with many of the great characters but also this this time that you had with perform now to zone and being a disruptor that the, the global cycling network and you've been involved in so many different things i imagine that friends of yours get their sons and daughters to ask you you know they're 21 coming out of university What's it take to be in the sports industry? Oh, great, Andrew Croker, you've been around. What do you think now are the skills for the youngsters coming through in this sport reimagined? What would your avuncular advice be to, to youngsters coming through in, an, in, a, in our new industry? Oh, well, I'm sure like, like you, I've had the you know, endless times of people. I, I mean, the number of times that I've, I've been asked, and I've always said, um, well, before I do anything, I'll meet them. And then very often I meet them and 
not to generalise, but it's on more than one occasion I've met somebody whose father has said he wants to work in sport. And then when I've met him, he doesn't want to work in sport, but his father wants him to work in sport. <laughs> so you think, I'm going around the house here. And so what do you actually want to do? Um, I, I think with a lot of people, I say, in many ways, you know, I, I trained as an accountant, you know, an FCA, or what Americans would call a CPA. Uh, a huge number of people came through, IMG in particular, as lawyers. Um, you look at people, you know, who've come through, like, you know, Jonathan Lake, who come through from a strategic background and the rest of it. Ollie Slipper came through from a uh, consulting background. I suspect, you know, actually wanting to go straight into sport as directly to work in it is actually quite difficult. I think you, whether you've got a degree or some professional qualification, you're more likely to find your way in by sort of going up and then going sideways into it rather than just saying directly, I want to work in sport because it has become so specialist. I mean, if you could work in sport, uh, you know, because you work in data, you work in marketing, you work in uh, Media. legal, whatever now. So I, I think it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's difficult. It's very seductive because you're just like saying, you know, do you want to work in the cinema industry? You know, do you want, you know, it, it's, it, or television. Yes, it, it's seductive. So yes, you do. But do you want to work in banking? No, not particularly. I don't know. Um, and so it, I, I think it's very difficult. Andrew, let me let, let me let me ask you a question here, which is also the sponsor question. Uh, this show is brought by Sports Digital, so we're grateful to them. And I've saved my favourite question for them this week. Um, one of the things that somebody noticed when they see your career, um, and I, I don't think it's mentioned enough, is how often you've gone and got off your backside and done something new. You know, uh, from BSB to IMG to um, Sportal, I want to talk about Sportal. You know, why do I want to talk about Sportal? Because Sportal was in that moment in time of Web 2, or even Web 1, one could say, uh, the, the dot-com boom, where you guys created um, what today is called, a kind of like on its way to a unicorn. Um, you'd created a massive amount of paper valuation, Um and it kind of like disappeared through no fault of your own, just because market sentiment changed. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah. When you when you see um, sport tech valuations today, and maybe that's not the worst example, but when you see Web three um, froth, um, does that take you back to your days in Sportal and how close you got to a very very significant exit? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I mean, I could, I could at one point definitely in my life have wallpapered an entire house with share option certificates from companies that very close, say, came very close to making me a lot of money. Um, I think that I, you're absolutely right in the observation that I've never, I've never had a job or a role that was uh, I inherited from anybody else. I mean, every job I ever had was, you know, it was a startup, it was new business. And I think it's the old, um, and I've no idea where this came from, I've tried to find out, but the old expression of finders, binders, and minders, and even grinders. But there are in, in business people who, um, you know, go out and they're road warriors or truffle hounds or whatever you call it. And there's other people who are good at, you know, closing deals and getting it done. And there are other people who are brilliant at minding the shop. And I think there may be, rightly or wrongly, a premium attached to the first, but actually, it's just as important to keep a client. And, and Giles, you'll tell me from the sponsorship business, the idea of 
actually renewing and retaining your sponsors is just as important, if not more important, than finding them in the first place. So uh, I, that was just me, and I just I I was pretty good at, at getting people signed up as well as finding them. Um, the, the, there's a great story about Ian Todd, who you both know, who I consider you know a legend of our industry. When he was at Nike, he'd been there a while. And Ian was a man who wouldn't read an you know a memo if it was longer than one page. I mean, he, you know, there was no messing about. We got straight to the point, and he was asked to do the re, the personnel reviews for people one year, and they put a stack of papers like a foot thick on his desk. And he said, how does this work? He said, well, what we do is we try and identify people's strengths and weaknesses. So if, for example, we're very, very good at marketing, but weak on personnel, we'll send them on a personnel course. And Ian said, wouldn't it be more logical if people who are bad at personnel, just keep them away from that. But if they're good at marketing, we send them on a marketing course and make them even better. And they said, and the guy apparently looked at him blankly and said, no, we don't do that. So I think Ian just chucked it all a little bit and carried on. So I think you, what you've got to do is you've just got to work out what you're good at and, and get stronger at that and then not pretend, you know, I was I'm, I'm minding the shop, I'm hopeless. So this is why I don't think I might have been a good short-term CEO of the Premier League or the FA, but I would not have lasted the course because I'd, I've got the attention span of Russell Brand. In your um, in your book that may or may not be produced of the ten deals that shook the world or whatever you're going to call it, I love that. I love that. Looking forward to the publishing of that, and I'd like a signed copy if possible. Yes. But, but before that, of of all the people you've worked with, and you know, we all have people in our lives who we've looked up to, who've been mentors, people we've greatly admired, who directly we've worked alongside or with. Of all of the people you have, is there someone who has stood out that has was the person that maybe fashioned you the most into the person you became in the industry? Oh, well, without question, my dad, uh, because he, um, you know, obviously that's my dad, but I think he had, um, he certainly had c- commercial vision in those early days of the FA, and he had integrity, and he had uh, a great ability to. Um, um, relate to people. He treated everybody the same. I mean, he was a guy who captained the RAF football team, which contained 11 first division players. And he was the only one who was an officer, but he treated everybody the same. And, and all, always he, he had that common touch with people and, but didn't take any prisoners. So, um, but I have met a succession of people um, who have, you know, impressed me and influenced me. And some of them were flawed and not all geniuses. Um, so, I mean, I could. Do you want me to tell you some more of those people? Well, I'll just maybe. Well, I've, you, get, you go I, I've got right. one. I've got one I wanted to ask specifically, and and this is a little bit our style in this podcast that you know we're very friendly and everything like that, but we do throw in a short pitched one sometimes. So, talking okay. about people, uh, and you know, I ask this knowing my own answer, which is a pragmatic one. Um, one of the people you um, were very friendly with um, is Jerome Valk. And yeah. I too dealt with Jerome Valk when he was at Canal Plus and he tried to buy my rights. Um, anybody Googling Jerome Valk will see a, a succession of articles that are closely linked to people's perception of FIFA in general. My question to you is this. How much does one in the sports industry have to, in some ways, go with the flow to get anything done? Um, I, I think there's no question. If you looked at the way you know, Seb Coe managed to you know, get, get to where he has got to in World Athletics, which is, I think is a great place, 
Um, I, he had to, I mean, anyone would say, you know, to, to get there, he had to do certain things. I mean, we historically, we as Brits aren't very good at doing all that Mediterranean stuff. And if you look back at the history of FIFA, you know, the days of Prima Nebbiolo and the IAAF, um, sorry, yeah, the IAAF and then DX and higher twos of this world and all the rest of it, it, it is a crazy world. And it's like trying to deal with the United Nations or trying to deal with what's going on with NATO now and all the rest of it. I always say that with FIFA, I mean, I go back, you know, right at the beginning with, with Sepp Blatter. I mean, Sepp Blatter, I always say, never had, I don't think Sepp Blatter was ever in it for the money. Sepp genuinely um, thought he was, you know, taking football where it should go. And if you looked at what happened in from 78 with the creation of ISL and what Havalanche did and with Dassler and, and all the money and the rest of it, yes, there were some appalling things that happened and you, which you can't justify, but actually football became bigger and more powerful and better and the events, nobody, nobody ever says, oh, that World Cup was fixed or that was dodgy. The events just got bigger and better and football's structure has always been incredibly robust. Jerome... Uh, was somebody I worked with, I admired enormously, and I still do. I think he's a phenomenal operator. But you you were operating within the way that the Exco was structured and all the rest of it. You couldn't just go in there and say, this is happening, because what would that achieve? And I think the World Cups that he was involved in, particularly uh, Brazil and South Africa, were tremendously successful events, and he was a brilliant operator. I mean, I wish that Jerome, in a way, had stayed, if you remember, he was the commercial director, and I think he was an absolutely brilliant commercial director, and then he was ousted briefly and then came back as general secretary. And, um, you know, I wonder if Jerome had just stayed as commercial director and accepted, you know, doing that, that he, he you know, it, it, would have been, it would have been a different story. Um, I mean, it's such a massive subject, but, um, I mean, one of the most capable people I ever worked with um, you know, a, a dear friend of mine and I, I think a good person. Croaks, I knew this was going to happen, that, that you were going to be the guest that, frankly, we've had an hour, we could do many hours with you um, because yeah, your, story, yeah. your stories are great, but also just the reflection. It almost feels on this uh, podcast that you're kind of one of the one of the interviewers almost if, if that makes sense in yeah, terms it's very of, natural andrew we're, very we're, natural we're, we're sharing with that but what i did want to say to you and i think i there's probably about five or six hundred people in the sports industry who are reeling a little bit from the fact that you used to hold perhaps the greatest summer party in sport at your former house in sw19 round a, a very spectacular tennis tournament uh, up there in wimbledon and that presumably, now that you've left that house, any plans for any future parties that we all need to get togged up for? Well, I'll tell you what happened was, I, th I think the last one we had, there were about, I think we worked out there were 130 people there and I knew about 20 of them because it was sort of, it was it was very heavily involved with design and performing. All these people were turning up and it was at my house. And Joanna said, who are all these people? So I think it's sort of, and it was like the, you know, the annual sports quiz and these other things that happen. I, they, they had a time and a place and I will do something again. And there's all sorts of, I think, uh, let me, just off the top of my head, I think I'm coming up for an anniversary. I think I'm coming up for 50 years of, of being in and around this business or something bonkers. So and I, the, I think I'm not that old. 50 would be, no, no, I don't know what it is anyway, but it's it's something coming up very soon. So um, well, I, I have to say, we haven't, I, I, you know, I thought we were going to get onto private equity and investment in sport and a whole bunch of other stuff. We ran out of time, mate. We ran out of time. We'll, we'll have you back. But there is a, there is an event that, that Roger is hosting um, in his uh, homeland of, of Italy in Lake Como later on in the year. And I think that you should come out for it. You can have um, 
Roger by the champagne, which in of itself is a rarity, so you could enjoy that. <laughs> and um, rub shoulders. And I'll be serving the canapes. I'm kind of, I'll be like the sort That's of really, Ruprecht. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be I'm the Ruprecht. From, I'm hot back from Nashville, going to see, uh, where I shall visit Mr. Eyre and his MLS team. Uh, I would love to. My, my wife, many of you know, used to live in Italy. So if I tell her we're going to Lake Como, she'll be there. Well, that's a date. Um, Andrew, Cro- Andrew Croker, I have to say, a joy for me personally. I know for both of us personally to have you on the show. It was four years coming, but thank God we got the invite in. And thank you so much for coming. Lovely to see you guys. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. That was amazing, Gerald, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I love um, I love Croaks because it's not just because he's been around for nearly 50 years in the industry. It's not that. It's... He's a storyteller, as I said, but he's also someone who he elicits the best out of people and great humour and great laughter. And everywhere he's been, there are people who have stories about croaks and, you know, deals that have been done, etc. And, and for him, I do hope he writes a book and a reflection on his time in the sports industry, however he frames it. He's a beautiful writer um, and just lovely to have him on the show. I really could have gone for, for hours and hours, but... I'll leave that for you to set up uh, part two, where we will get into some of the the, the more chunky stuff. And I'll leave that up to you. But you know that 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 was great, and and you know, um, for me it closes a little bit of a circle because when I met him, I think it was in a, um, Kensington High Street, a, a hotel there, when I'd written to him to see if I could help him on his Italian rights at BSB. Like he said in the episode, he insisted on meeting me. He didn't just say on you go. Um, so I guess I must have passed the test there that the others didn't because he said get yourself down to Graham Fry and roll your sleeves up so uh, this podcast was a little bit you know the the closing of that Uh, and he is a great guy Um, and you know let's do it again absolutely well that wraps up the show if you want to follow us you can do that on Twitter at entertain.r that's the word r you can follow Giles at at GilesMorgan71 And you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, cracker, lovely to see you, and we'll uh, see you soon. Good man. Take care, Captain.